Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR Show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, hello, Sanbonani Molo, how's it? Shalom, you are listening to the IRR show, that's right, that's the independent, relevant and real show. I'm your host, Big Daddy Liberty, and I'm joined, of course, by the ever-radiant and uh, wonderful co-host of the show, Sara Gon. Good morning, Sara, how are you doing? Particularly after that introduction, I'm doing fabulously well. Fantastic, fantastic. What is there not to like? <laughs> um, it's a wonderful Tuesday morning uh, for those of you who are... Uh, waking up at this point of the day Wow <laughs> Must be nice to be you Guys we have a jam-packed show for you Let me get straight into what you can expect today uh, After the break we're going to have a quick chat About what the week was uh, What you saw, what you didn't see What you should be paying attention to And of course after that Our main feature for today is a wonderful interview With a chap who I think you guys will like As we talk Brexit And all things Brexit What is going on with the Brits And um, we'll open the lines to you guys Remember after that by sending us a telegram at 061-895-1019 or SMS us at 34519. Guys, we'll see you after this short ad break. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR Show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Hi, welcome back to the IRR Show with me, Big Daddy Liberty and my co-host Sarah Gon. Sarah, talk to us about um, what I think has been a rather interesting news week um, and a weekend, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we looking at today? Uh, Mugabe, I suppose, is top of mind. Yeah, well, what's distressing about Mugabe's death is not his death, which is not distressing at all, uh, long overdue, frankly. Um, but th- <laughs> what's been distressing is the sort of hagiographic praise that he's been receiving from leaders across the continent, not least of which are our leaders. No, almost no reference to the, 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 sorry, excuse me, the destruction he wrought on his country. And I'm rather appalled by it because I think it signifies that those who've only said good things about him have tended to be parties that have never lost power since, since they, since they came into power. And I think they see him as the, He's the absolute paragon of how to stay in power. Mm. And you, 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 uh, sorry, just if you're joining us, you're listening to the IRR show. Welcome to the show. This show is brought to you by the Institute of Race Relations in proud partnership with Chai FM. Welcome to the show. We're discussing Mugabe and his um, his death, his passing, and the weird obsession we've seen from the political elites, really, to praise this man with no context and no um, reference to you know the bloody murderous um, regime of evil that he led in Zimbabwe. There's, there's almost a weird sense of trying to shove it down our throats, if you will. I mean, for example, the economic freedom fighters, the sort of red and tooth and claw leftist party here in South Africa is currently holding a memorial for the guy as if he's some wonderful chap. I mean, if you look at the online chatter um, from the likes of Julius Malema, it's this weird sort of fawning over this guy. Um, and here's my, my... And I want to put this to you, Sarah. It, 
there are some some individuals mm-hmm. on an ideological spectrum who claim to be pan Africanists mm-hmm. or or pro African or hashtag pro black, um, and they're the ones who are doing the most praise and worship, if you will, mm-hmm. of Julius Malema. Excuse me, of um, um, well, hey, at this moment, yes, to conflate the two um, of 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 Robert Mugabe, mm-hmm. but none of them are saying anything about the fact that Mugabe himself was a murderous led a murderous regime that actually killed Africans. What kind of a pan Africanist well, praises that? Well, See, I think that's one indicative of something that holds Africa back from really making an impact on the world. And, and that's that it's a combination of symbolism and a desperation to make sure that imperialism remains the sort of the big evil. And, I mean, there have been a number of journalists who've, who've written a little bit about his history. And Peter Godwin has said in no uncertain terms that Mugabe was always an evil man with very strong ambitions. Yeah. From the word go. Yeah, I mean, and uh, he is definitely not missed by Big Daddy Liberty and by the sounds of it, Saragon either. Sorry, let's move on. We briefly want to touch on the national health insurance, the the effective nationalization of South African health care. What do we need to know at the moment? Okay, well, I'm not going to say very much about the detail because we will do a program or two or three about the issue. Absolutely. It it requires so much talk. I'm going to just raise something slightly funny. Finland is supposed to have the best national health system in the world. It covers Everybody, it's absolutely free. Over 80% of of the population of Finland thinks that it is a great system. We, on the other hand, are about to head into or possibly head into a system that will be disastrous. And I won't go into the detail of that, but it will will be disastrous. Absolutely. Now, the irony is these two extremes will find themselves in almost the same position. Finland has an aging population and the young population is, is smaller. It's losing its, its revenue base, its tax revenue base to pay for the health system. Mm. And the Finns are getting very worried about it. Mm. We, have a, we have an aging problem. We have a large youth problem, a youth uh, population, but that population is unemployed. Mm. So, and our tax base, because of the terrible economy, is shrinking. Mm. So we both, one way or the other, are going to have the same sort of problem. And it's going to be fundamental to whether anything continues to work in the one case or even starts working in the other. Absolutely. We'll bring you, of course, a full episode on the issue of the National Health Insurance, arming you with the knowledge and the arguments essentially against a system which nationalizes healthcare but doesn't fix the actual problems in it, nor the lack of quality. We're going to move on. Sarah, we, this past weekend, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a women's march mm-hmm. in Cape Town, essentially marking um, and note, taking note of just the absolute sheer scale of the, you know, the the, the problem mm. of gender-based violence in this country. And look, insofar as, you know, people are continuing to bring awareness to this, you know, kudos to that. Absolutely. But there are certain conceptual problems that are developing mm. from, in terms of the narrative around this issue. Okay. No one seems to want to empower women directly. There's uh, arguments around begging the state or begging men not to rape and to abuse. There's something wrong with this, isn't there? There's something wrong with this because, first of all, you know, begging the government to improve the police Obviously, it's a good thing, but the police can, do, cannot prevent the abuse. Yeah. And what's starting to come out but isn't being discussed honestly enough and boldly enough is the fact that um, parents, families, communities have actually got to deal with the fact that the abuse comes in through those, through those systems. Yeah. So, in other words, you've got to stop boys from becoming abusers. You've got a very traditional system. I mean... Ipsos has just done a poll with 3,600 people where one in 10 men felt they had the right to abuse their wives. In other words, they see their wives as property. Now, unless you start to tackle those attitudes, 
and schools play a huge role in this as, can play a huge role in this as well. You're going to have kids who, as they become adults, you've lost them. And they're going to, they hate, they're going to hate women or disrespect them. Yeah. And again, my biggest problem here is not so much that people are asking this date and men not to rape and abuse mm-hmm. and the like. Of course, there's a conversation to be had about that, but we, we, we then seem to bypass the, the, the most immediate Absolutely. phase, which is we should be talking about building a society where also women in this country mm-hmm. are able to defend, mm-hmm. um, their life, liberty and property rights. If you try, if you're a would be abuser, would be rapist and you know, you step up to a woman mm-hmm. to try and attack or harm them, that woman should have the power, the means in that moment to defend her life mm. and really, um, you know, not subject herself to the sort of abuse that women have been experiencing. But again, we'll have this conversation. Um, sorry, we, we, there's just so, so much, much to, to talk, talk about. about. <laughs> um, but um, sorry, one of the things I think we also really need to look at, um, it, it's a little bit amusing, but also it isn't really, mm. given, you know, the importance of a, an opposition in this country. The DA seems to be unraveling mm. at the seams. There's a headline in the papers uh, about the DA losing its funders and having to now potentially retrench workers. What's what's going on there? I think it's very much a result of the election. I think people across the board who'd always been diehard DA supporters were very, very disappointed. Some didn't vote. Some split their vote. And for, I think for a lot of people, I, I would include myself, after decades of support, there were a whole lot of issues that they did, they weren't clear about. They expressed those wrong sentiments about, etc., etc. And I think what's happening is People have become disillusioned, and with the disillusion comes the drop in funds. They don't seem to be correcting themselves. They do need a a new leadership. They need a complete revamp. And the tragedy is that if they'd been strong, now now would have been the time to have started really creeping up behind the ANC. Absolutely. And uh, again... A real worry, and you've actually raised this issue right now. The real worry is it, 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 it bodes ominous for mm. most opposition parties in the country when your largest opposition group mm. is struggling to not only retain its own mem, excuse me, its own support base. Mm. I mean, having lost 500,000, um, uh, voters in this last election, but it seems to also be losing the people who back it financially. Mm. Um, guys, we are going to have a fantastic conversation today. We have a chap who I think you guys will really Enjoy. His name is Herman Pretorius. Uh, we're going to be talking Brexit with him, and he's going to break it down for you guys in graphic detail. And um, <laughs> as I, only he can do. Absolutely, it. and I'm sure by the end of it, you'll have a very strong command as to what exactly is happening with the Brits. Um, are they going to leave? Are they going to stay? What is happening um, in that part of the world? Is Boris Johnson um, holding it together? You know, because um, <laughs> his, yeah. fa- his family's there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, we, we're going to have that conversation after the break. Uh, stay tuned. You're listening to the IRR show. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant, and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from nine to ten, promoting life, liberty, and property rights. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the IRR show. We are cooking with grease now. Things are moving along quite nicely. If you are new to the show, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Big Daddy Liberty and I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, the ever-radiant Sara Gunn. Um, Sara, we're having an interesting morning today, aren't we? We are and we're about to interview a colleague. Well, I'm not even sure interview. We're just going to ask him to start speaking and let him speak about Brexit. I think 
Herman Pretorius has forgotten more about Brexit than the entire British Parliament knows. <laughs> um, well, and that's the lovely thing. We always bring you guests on the show who are experts, who know what they're talking about, who are able to inform and arm you with arguments. Very quickly, remember, you can reach us on our studio number at 010-1403-020 or telegram us at 061-895-1019. Or, hey, if you're old school like me, send us an SMS at 345. In studio, we're joined, of course, by Herman Pretorius. He is a analyst at the Institute of Race Relations. Herman, good morning. How are you, brother? I am fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on, sir. Fantastic. Um, Herman, we're going to jump straight into it. Hmm. Um, it has been an interesting news week if you are a Brit. Um, I'm sure you're wondering. <laughs> you are wondering. Put it that way. <laughs> um, what is happening in the echelons of government and parliament? Um, hmm. Brexit, um, yes. Herman. Take us through very briefly what it's all about um, and how we got to this particular point. Okay, a very brief overview. So in um, June uh, 2016, the 23rd of June, uh, the UK voted by uh, 52% to 48% to exit the European Union. Now that came uh, as a bit of a shock. Well, as a bit of a shock is an understatement. It came as a huge shock to the uh, UK political establishment and also, you know, uh, the punditry across the world. And the Euroscepticism that drove uh, the victory of the Leave side really started in the dying days of Margaret Thatcher's uh, premiership um, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and, and perhaps one could trace it back to her specific Bruges speech where she famously said, we have not in Britain rolled back the tides of the state or the frontiers of the state only to have them reimposed at a European level. And that kind of sparked a Tory Euroscepticism that uh, stayed uh, uh, quite vocal even though it was a small minority of the Tory par- parliamentary party and they gave the Thatcher successor John Major a hell of a time in the early 90s to uh, get the Maastricht Treaty uh, through the House um, through the House of Commons and Maastricht really changed uh, what was an uh, an economic community into the federalized nation uh, federalized aspiring pseudo super nation that we see in the European Union and people like Bill Cash and so on and Peter Bone even from the early 90s they are still today conservative MPs and from that day uh, or from those early days of the 90s they kept this Euroscepticism alive, this opposition to the EU. And uh, when David Cameron and then, of course, John Major lost handsomely to Tony Blair in 97 and then for uh, 13 years, there was a Labour government. And in 2005, David Cameron became leader of the Tory party, a young new face who could change uh, the Conservative Party to be an electoral force, learn the lessons from Blair and forget the lessons of Thatcher and uh, hopefully bring the Tory party into government. And part of this was he wanted, in his words, his party to stop banging on about Europe. He was hoping that, you know, he could stop this, the, the Euroscepticism and all this. He, it was, he thought it was little Englandism. And, uh, and then he became prime minister in, in 2010 in a coalition government with the liberal, liberal Democrats. Uh, and then they had a five-year parliament from mm-hmm. 2010 to 2015. And then in 2015, there came this election. But in the intervening years between 2010 and 2015, 
up came uh, the uh, the specter, which is Nigel Nigel Farage and his UK Independence Party. UK. Good old Nigel. Good old Nigel. And what <coughs> he managed to tap into during the 2010-2015 Parliament was this Euroscepticism. And because it had always kind of been a Tory pet topic... Mm. He was seen as an electoral threat to the conservatives on the right. Mm. So to neutralize that threat for the 2015 election, David Cameron said if the Tories win a majority in the 2015 election, he will call an in-out referendum on the issue of the EU. Uh, and most people, um, or many pundits, think that Cameron didn't think he was going to win a majority in 2015. He then did. An absolute majority, uh, you need about 326 seats in the House of Commons to win or to govern in a majority. He won 331. So um, a lot of people thought that uh, this uh, election promise to hold a referendum was a way to neutralize UKIP on the right, Mm -hmm. but kind of have something to give away in coalition negotiations to the Liberal Democrats Mm. so that this promise wouldn't actually have to be kept. Uh, I'm going to cut you short mm. uh, briefly because I want. Uh, um, I think there's, there's. You're introducing a lot of players into this mm. um, conundrum who today are also very vocal voices around yeah. this. Um, take me to the point where I suppose we look at the Tory Party right now. Yes. Um, what is their stance on Brexit generally? Because it seems like a lot of the fracturing mm. right now is happening in that party. What's going on in the Tories at the moment? Well. Um, um, if anyone knows, please phone. Um, no. uh, so uh, a lot of the fracturing is happening in that party, but we shouldn't be uh, uh, blind to the fracturing in, in, in some of the other parties. Mm. But what happened between the 2015 election and now is what laid the groundwork for this fracturing. Cameron called the, he unexpectedly won the election. He then called the referendum, unexpectedly lost it, resigned. Theresa May became prime minister and for three years or for two of the three years she was prime minister, she said, I will get us a good deal. No deal is better than a bad deal. Brexit means Brexit. And in the, uh, in the last year of her premiership, um, which came after the 2017 general election where she lost, unexpectedly lost the majority David Cameron unexpectedly won, uh, that plunged the Tory party into chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have the majority to do anything uh, in government and also it reinvigorated this debate because after the referendum, everyone were kind of relux- reluctant Brexiteers in the Tory party. They saw politically this is the way forward. Uh, Theresa May said Brexit means Brexit. She was an absolute colossus on the UK political stage. And then came the 2017 election. It goes disastrously and whoop, up flares the old debates again because everyone sees their chance. The reluctant, the reluctant Brexiteers, they reverse to becoming, you know, avid Remainers again. So now we are left with a Tory party under a new prime minister who we've seen the polls. The European elections earlier this year shows that if, uh, uh, because uh, the, the Brexit date was supposed to be the 29th of March mm-hmm. this year. And then that date came and went and Theresa May asked for an extension. And from that point, the Tory uh, uh, polling numbers absolutely is in free fall. Until Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, mm-hmm. then they start climbing back. So the Tories as a political tribe know that if they, if they are to survive, they have to, whether they are Brexiteers or Remainers, they have to give Boris Johnson the chance to do what he um, thinks he needs to do. Mm-hmm. And that is get Brexit through. And last last week, um, Johnson kicked out 22 Tory MPs out of his party. Mm-hmm. Now he mm-hmm. has uh, – uh, he, he used to have a, a majority of one 
in a working majority of one in the House of Commons because he was in a in a supply and um, uh, arrangement with the DUP, the largest Northern Irish party. But because he kicked out 22 of his own members, he now has a majority of minus 43. Mm. So it's chaos because the government doesn't have a majority. It can't do what it wants to do. The parliament doesn't want to kick out the government because the parliament, the opposition, is scared of an election. And now we are left with a Tory party that is basically in survival mode, knowing back Boris or we are extinct as a political force. Can I just ask you about that chucking out um, of the sort of remainers of, mm. of, of the uh, Tory party? And given the fact that it would result in a, it just, it, it, the, the majority would be gone, what, what, what would have swayed the preparedness to chuck out those, mm. that majority, what made up the majority, what would have persuaded them, uh, Boris Johnson to do that mm. and, and lose the majority? Well, um, the, the problem with the term majority is majority for what? Mm. Is it a majority to keep the Tories in government? Well, that's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. But Or is it a majority to get the most uh, important uh, government policy um, into law? Mm-hmm. And that's Brexit. So it, by kicking out those 22 members, Boris Johnson didn't really affect his majority for Brexit because mm-hmm. they weren't in his majority for Brexit anyway, in, the per, mm-hmm. in the first place. So by kicking them out, he's, as it were, cleaning house. Mm-hmm. These 22 Tory MPs cannot now stand for the next general election as Tory members. And what the whole number 10 uh, government strategy is, is there's an election coming. We need to be shipshaped for that election. And by getting rid of these barnacles, um, uh, uh, Michelle Barnacles. No, that's a terrible, <laughs> okay. oh, awful joke. Um, and by, by getting rid of these barnacles, um, they are gearing up for an election where Boris Johnson, because if these Tory MPs remained in the party and they got elected and suddenly after the next election, the Tories have a majority of, say, 20. Numerically, the Conservative Party uh, has a majority of 20. But on Brexit... 22 of their members might rebel mm. against government parties, so they d- don't have a majority de facto on the most important issue of the day. And, and just very briefly, um, w- when you look at the Tory party right now, mm. or rather, let me take it a step back, Boris Johnson seems to be looking for um, calling for an, a fresh election. Mm, mm. Uh, talk us through that quickly, why that's important for Boris, mm. um, and why therefore... Opposition parties, which for the longest of times have been calling for an election, 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 are now resisting Boris's call for an election. What's going on there? Well, if I can just add, I mean, some of the stuff that the Labour Party's been coming out with in the last day or so about how they're going to negotiate something that the EU won't negotiate and how, but they don't want an election, but they do want an election, it's purely Monty Python-esque. So if I can throw that into the mix as well. Yes, and and to add to the Monty Python-esque, I think the British electorate is just, you know, shouting, get on with it, like, uh, you know, um, so many characters does in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) Um, So what's happening with the election is uh, we have to go back back to the, to the Cameron years. Um, in 2010, uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Tories went into coalition so that together they could command a majority in the House of Commons. But to allay the fears of the Liberal Democrats that the Tories, while flying high in the polls at some future date, might unilaterally call an election as the Prime Minister at that time could, 
the government adopted the Fixed Term Parliaments Act of 2011, a disastrous piece of constitutional legislation which changes how elections are called in the UK. Previously, um, it was it was up to the Prime Minister to go to the monarch and say, I have lost the confidence of the House or the, the House is frustrating me and I need um, we need clarity on this. And that was a good way of looking at it. If the, the Parliament could pass a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister would then automatically have to go to the Queen and ask for an election. So Parliament can f- could fire the um, executive of the government, and which would immediately trigger an election. And the Prime Minister had the ability to challenge Parliament and say, "Let's let's go to the electorate. Let's use right. You don't want mm-hmm. to do what I want you to do. Let's hash this out in an election." Then the Fixed Term Parliament Act came in, so uh, to make sure that David Cameron, while he was Prime Minister of the Coalition government, couldn't you just willy-nilly call an election when it suited the Tories, not the Liberal Democrats, um, that was changed. So a two-thirds majority, 443 MPs, in other words, need to vote in favour of an election. Mm -hmm. And now we are in a situation where the uh, numbers in Parliament does not support Boris Johnson. He does not have a majority in the House of Commons. But because Boris Johnson is uh, seen as, you know, politically astute and going for Brexit and being able to, you know, tap into that Brexit anger, he's flying high in the polls at about 35% where Labour and the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party, they are at 20, 20, uh, 22, 20 and 12 respectively. So they don't want to go to an election on these current polling numbers because that would give Boris Johnson a stonking majority of between 50 and 60 seats. And some people theorize even 112 majority. So they don't want to call an election, but because of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, Boris Johnson cannot call an election as the Prime Minister always could. And basically what's happening is Parliament is holding the government hostage. It's saying, we won't kick you out as we should constitutionally do, um, because the the, the one defining feature between a normal MP and the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister can command a majority, uh, can command the so-called confidence of the House. Boris Johnson clearly cannot do that. So that problem, that fundamental uh, foundational block for the Prime Minister to traditionally have a constitutional mandate, that's gone. Mm. But Parliament doesn't want to do what it should do by kicking him out because they're scared of the electoral impact that would have. So Boris can't legislate, <laughs> Boris can't govern. Parliament doesn't want him to govern, but they don't want to kick him out. So it's a hostage situation. Boris. Well. Uh, Boris. Um, yeah, uh, I, 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 try, I try to do it. Um, th- th- there's a fundamental problem here that I'm, I'm hearing. At the end of the day, when one looks at the facts on the bottom line, so to speak, the Brits voted to leave the EU, mm. period. Mm. We've been for, is it four years now? Four or five years? Three years. Uh, three years. It feels me. longer. Uh, it really does. Yeah. It really does. Um, for three years, we, we've seen... Um, opposing Brits and their vested interest groups, whether it's the NGOs, uh, the media in many cases, um, either seek to delay or subvert or manipulate this decision in some way or the other. What's the end game here? I mean, mm. what, what, parties like the Lib Dems, for example, or even, uh, um, uh, what's that party led by the anti-Semite, um, Labour. the, the, the Labour. No, Labour. Um, <laughs> Corbyn. Th- these parties are, Literally sort of like trying to obstruct what is essentially being the will of the people. And yet mm. if you watch their social media feeds, they're the ones who then claim, oh, no, we, we're, we're actually rolling out what is the will of the people. Mm. There's something fundamentally problematic in this little conundrum. Yes. What is the end game of a Remainer who doesn't accept the loss? Uh, the, the thing... 
Now, the thing that the Johnson government realizes that the Theresa May government never realized is this was always going to end in someone going nuclear. Mm. This was uh, it's 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 such it. I mean, it's a holy war, as it were. There is no compromise between these two factions. It's a binary, uh, uh, almost semi-religious conflict. Mm. This. So Boris Johnson very well knows that this was always going to end in the blood sport we see now, where Theresa May thought she could uh, get compromise, but we're left in this insane position where Boris Johnson, who was elected to be Tory. Uh, leader and therefore prime minister said he doesn't want an election. Now he says he needs one. Labour for two years have been call- saying that the government needs to call an election. But now they say, no, not now. So you've got this insane thing where some someone who got elected saying he wouldn't call an election wants sure. one. Someone who was trying to do uh, his job as leader of the opposition by calling for an election now doesn't want one. It's, it's absolutely Monty Python-esque. And how does this end? Well, the thing is, I think this is all political game uh, positioning now. The Tories... The, the, the Johnson government is very much uh, aware of the fact that if they position themselves as the party of Brexit, they can tap into that 52%, that 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit, and redraw the UK political map. Uh, they could win seats in the north that voted heavily Brexit that were, you know, traditional labor seats where the, where the coal mines and the manufacturing industry largely uh, is situated. So Johnson is trying to reposition the Tory party as as the party of Brexit. Mm. Labour and Lib Dems are fighting amongst themselves as to who will be the party of Remain. And Labour has a big problem because, as I mentioned just now, many of their seats voted to leave. Mm. So they have this absurd position where Emily Thornberry, the shadow foreign secretary, said Labour, if they were to get into office, they would negotiate a deal. Uh, then they would call a referendum and then they would campaign against the deal they negotiated to remain in the EU. They would negotiate Brexit, call a referendum, campaign against the Brexit they negotiated, and campaign for the UK to remain in the EU. I is mean, it, it's insane. Is there, is there any possibility that, given the what the union has said, that they a, a date will come and go and they'll say, you're out? Yes. We, we're going to chuck you out. Very much so. I mean, um, if, if, if one looks at the Eurozone's economic circumstances, this uncertainty is really, really starting to, to, um, drain on, on, on the German economy. So we might, uh, 31st of October is the, you know, the Halloween exit date. It's quite possible that at that point the EU goes, we're done. No, we are done with this insanity nine. We don't want this any longer. So uh, it's unlikely, but it's completely possible. At this point, we are in a situation where Boris Johnson um, is has been for, is trying. He, the Parliament is trying to force him by law to uh, take no deal off the table. He has said he is going to ignore that. Mm-hmm. So we are in this unprecedented, if, if we take into account that the Parliament, the Executive, and the Court all sit in the name of the Queen, then we have this insane idea where the Queen, as Parliament, told the Queen, as Government, to go to the EU to negotiate as the Queen to leave, and the Queen says no. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a crisis. All right, guys, we're going to continue this conversation um, after the break, uh, and we encourage you guys to call in and get involved um, as we talk Brexit and exactly what's going on there. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. 
The IRR Show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Awesome. Welcome back, everybody. Um, guys, remember, we are in the last few minutes of our uh, show, and uh, we've kept Herman in studio so that we can open up the lines and get some of your commentary also coming through as to what you think you know is parting with Brexit. But we're going to pepper um, Herman with a few more questions. Herman, um, my major concern at this moment is that if I were, were a, an ordinary uh, UK uh, citizen, and I, I had voted to leave. I'm looking at all these shenanigans and I'm thinking, so what's up with this? Does my vote really not count then? Um, you know, in, w- when politicians call us to vote on an issue, um, will we be sort of not listened to? Uh, is that the, the precedent we're setting here? Mm-hmm. Number one. A second question I want to give you is, talk to me if you were a sort of uh, Jean-Claude Juncker type Euro- Eurocrat um, and you're looking at this absolute mess uh, in the UK, are you feeling emboldened by this? Because you're thinking, ha, any other European country that wants to do this, um, you know, will feel some apprehension looking at the UK. Uh, talk to me about those two perspectives. Mm. Firstly, I think um, you absolutely uh, put your finger on the pulse there. This, the, the democratic disenchantment, the de- democratic fallout of this could be enormous. It, it, I mean, I think I saw a figure of three million people voted in this referendum in 2016 who had never voted before. Mm. Not young people, voters of 40, 50 and 60 years old mm-hmm. who voted for the first time because for the first time they thought they might be able to, to use the phrase, the Leave campaign, take control. Mm-hmm. So that is very much, I think, what what the Johnson government is aware of. And ironically, after having kicked out 22 respected parliamentarians, they went up in the opinion polls. They jumped by three to five points. So going into an election that is inevitable at some stage, the, uh, the Tory party under Johnson is quite clearly trying to position themselves to speak to those disenchanted voters, to set up an election, which is the people versus parliament to say that we are actually the people who uh, we are the, the the party who want to um, adhere to the will of the people against this establishment and it's very uh, Trumpian but not Trumpian in, in a sense it's very anti-establishment and we all know that anti-establishmentarianism is a staple of, of electoral politics mm-hmm. so I think Johnson is very aware of you as a voter Sichler having voted to leave and now seeing this this uh, entertaining the possibility that your vote might count for nothing from a constitutional perspective it uh, referendums rarely work because what they actually do is they create another chamber mm. of parliament the people and now you have the people, the commons and the lords and no one knows who's superior to who mm. between the commons and the lords you know the lords is subservient to the commons but between the commons and the people it's not quite clear who's superior so that is the, the, the real nub of this issue and then if we look at, at it from an EU perspective I'd be worried, actually. Um, I I might not, you know, be 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 uh, an, an adherent to the EU faith, but a No Deal Brexit would damage the EU, EU um, significantly. Um, so. It, we, we saw uh, Germany's uh, GDP um, shrunk in the first quarter. They might be staring down the barrel of a technical recession. If Germany goes, then the Eurozone is not in a full-blown crisis, but in should be in panic mode. Yeah. And uh, if Brexit isn't sorted out with a good deal 
so that the EU can continue, uh, uh, you know, constructive economic trade with the UK, then the effect will be quite harsh for the EU. Can, can I just ask, I mean, Macron, the mm. president of France, has mm. emphatically said no more negotiations. Mm. So you're saying they, they, de- they desperately need a decent deal, mm. but at the same, is it just sort of tub-thumping that they're saying we're not negotiating any further? It seems to be contradictory. I think it's part of that, mm-hmm. because if we look about five weeks ago, right after Johnson became prime minister, before the, uh, the parliament uh, sat again on the 3rd of September, um, Johnson had some very positive interaction and constructive interaction with Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, mm. where they said they started to budge for the first time. They started to budge on the idea that the Irish backstop, a very problematic part of the uh, ter- uh, withdrawal um, agreement that Theresa May uh, Johnson's predecessor negotiated, they said that that could be looked at mm-hmm. again. So they started open the door, perhaps in, in nanomillimeters, to the negotiation or the renegotiation of certain aspects of the deal. Mm-hmm. And if, I mean, if, if you open that door, it can perhaps be squeezed open a bit. But that has now, they've taken a step back. I think they've, the, 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 the uh, defeats, the six defeats that Johnson has suffered in the Commons perhaps changed that power dynamic between Johnson saying, well, no deal or a new deal. And, Back then, before uh, five weeks ago, the EU might have been willing to believe him. But I think now they are back to uh, can Johnson actually go for a, a no-deal Brexit. Mm. So I, th- I genuinely think my analysis is that we will be looking at a deal negotiated mm. um, at the 11th hour because I think both sides need it. Johnson needs it politically. The EU needs it economically. Um, but it's – I mean, it, it, it's all to play for. There's something – sorry, sorry. No, no, go ahead. There's something – Quite funny about Labour's uh, proposal that, a, that a, ref- a second referendum will, held, will be held. Obviously, the, the text of the question or questions is important. Mm. But the problem is, how do they know the second referendum won't go the way of the Brexiteers? Uh, mm. there's, again, the same assumption seems to be um, flowing through mm. that came from the first referendum, mm. and that is that the mistake of yeah. the first referendum won't happen in the mm. second referendum. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really foolish. Yeah, the, the, the thing is, I think many Brexiteers are opposed to a second referendum, not because they're scared they will lose, mm. but because of the um, precedent it would set. Mm. I mean, then you immediately will have a second Scottish independence referendum. Mm. Mm. Then uh, the, the, the idea that a vote can be so easily disregarded and people told, well, you voted wrong the first time. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Let's go back to you. But that, I think, would be de- de- democratically damaging because it is so extremely patronizing. Mm. So, um, but, but genuinely, I think were there another referendum, Leave would walk it. Leave would absolutely mm. walk it. Um, people are sick and tired of this nonsense. This decision was taken. Get on with it. And um, th- and my biggest problem with another referendum is, okay, why not the best of, best of five? Okay, how about best of seven? How about, okay, best of 11? Let's just make double. It's becoming as long sure. as a cricket match. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. And the um, problem is... This it, this was the second referendum. They had a referendum in seventy five. Mm. Now they have a referendum in twenty sixteen. My goodness! I mean, how many times do you want people to tell you to do something if you're a politician? Mm. Adman, as we look to conclude our conversation, talk to us about the hyperbole from all sides, perhaps. Um, you know, when when the Leave vote came through, or when we found out Leave won, excuse me. Ah, um, oh, you know, we were told there'll be. 
frogs raining from the heavens, uh, you know, things would collapse. Even some of the big banks, the Bank of England, I, I believe, was like, oh, this is terrible, you know, it's terrible, it'll, it'll mess up the economy and blah, 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 blah. Mm. None of this happened, yes. right? In fact, the, the Brits became stronger economically. Yes. Uh, the sentiment that is was, was one which actually strengthened the economy. Mm. But let's say, um, the, the deadline comes, mm. they negotiate, or as you know, they, I'll give you two scenarios. They negotiate a no deal, hard mm-hmm. Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we looking at in terms of, you know, what does it mean for the, the Brits? Does it mean they're iced out from the EU in terms of, uh, the economy, the uh, freedom of movement, all, all of that kind of stuff? Um, and what sort of deal, as you answer that question, what sort of deal do you think they should go for? Um, mm. yeah. So, on a no deal, I have never bought into. I'm, ironically, I've been following. Um, I've been following British politics for about a decade now, and I started very much a Remainer. But during the campaign, I flipped because the the arguments were just better. So I've never bought into the scaremongering of a no deal, um, and I've never bought into the scaremongering of Brexit. The fascinating thing is, only nine percent of GDP is biz, of UK's GDP um, is a trade with the e, with the EU. 91% isn't. Mm. So a 91% will be unaffected. The ports infrastructure on Calais, on the, on the side of Europe, uh, and in Britain, they've said they're ready for no deal. So all in all, we have, uh, no deal scaremongering. In effect, it might be a new adjustment. But uh, I don't think it will uh, be disastrous, and and there are some economists who agree with me. But I mean, it's 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 dangerous to call it exactly. And what deal should they go for? Mm-hmm. I think realistically, they could go for Theresa May deal. Theresa May's deal um, uh, with four crucial changes: mm-hmm. one, changes to the Irish backstop, ele- electronic monitoring of the Irish border, a change to the financial settlement, and. Uh, change to the status of the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, in interpreting the treaty. Okay, um, lots said in a few seconds. Um, we're going to have to go to an ad break, and we'll catch you shortly after this. Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. We're back and we're going to look at an SMS from a listener to the effect as follows. I wonder if you're aware that while Cameron uh, called for a referendum was a call for a referendum was a misstep, the problem was compounded by a foolish prime minister who lost the Tory majority by calling for a dumb snap election. Tories had enough of a majority until Theresa May's election as UK prime minister. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that, that 2017 election changed everything. Uh, and the election that Boris Johnson wants to have now is the election that Theresa May wanted to have in 2017. Um, and I, I did think earlier in the session, I did say, you know, everyone were Brexiteers just before the 2017 election. Theresa May was this enormous figure. She had Brexit means Brexit. She had a no deal is better than a bad deal. And then she scuppered that with a, a, a bad election campaign. Campaign that introduced policies into the debate that so detracted from her strong position on Brexit that it ended up uh, costing the Tories their majority, their first majority since mm. 1992. What I didn't, I mean, what she wanted to go to an election for was to be absolute, to, to gain a large majority to really support her mm. position. 
but she she came, although she wasn't elected in she had she was solid she had mm. solid support she mm. technically didn't need that majority no and but but i think um it depends on what you mean with need. Uh, the, the way where Theresa May failed, where I think Boris Johnson will try and succeed, I don't know if he will, is Theresa May called the election on the threat of Parliament might try to stymie my attempts to get a good Brexit. And the, the problem is at that point she had just passed two important pieces of legislation – with a, with a huge majority um, in Parliament. So the idea that she would tell the electorate, you know, these guys who just gave me a huge majority to get three, uh, two or three important pieces of legislation, th- legislation through, they might turn against me and that would put Brexit in peril. That didn't fly. Even though I think she was right, I think the argument was badly made. Johnson has the benefit, the very it's a benefit very much disguised as a curse, um, a very good disguise, uh, of saying, you know, it's not that where Theresa May said they might stymie or they will stymie. Boris Johnson can say they are stymieing me. They are tying my hands. Where Theresa May, it was only always putative or potential. Okay. Ooh, guys, um, this topic is literally a hot top, uh, hot button issue. Um, let me thank our guests for coming through. Harriman Pretorius, of course, is an analyst and writer at the Institute of Race Relations. Thank you very much for coming through, Harriman. Um, Sora, mm. uh, yo, uh, again, we, we've just <laughs> sort of got, run the gauntlet of, of, you know, what the Brits are going through and it's, you know, sort of hurly gurly mm. stuff or, or on that side of the border. But as we look to wrap up our show, let's look at the week that will be. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the news items, some of the things that I think people should be paying attention to in the, new, the, the upcoming week? Well, I think the xenophobia ra- uh, riots are going to, the discussions around it are going to come up. Whether actual riots, more riots will occur is, is an open question. But I think South Africa got quite a fright with the, uh, with, with the African countries who really, really Responded. skewed them on us. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, that's going to be an issue. Funnily enough, I think what's going to also be a general issue is the increasing, increasing agreement that, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa has, has and is doing Nothing, mm. and I think that's going to be a source of certainly more opinion, if not if not news. Um, <laughs> I think the, what we're also going to see is we're going to see people like uh, Julius Malema and Ace Magashule facing more and more potential criminal criminal accusations uh, arising from and beyond the Zonor Commission, VBS, etc. Absolutely, and I think there's going to be a lot of focus on them, which is going to be interesting because. They are both people who've been, who are unashamedly racist. Mm. And I think they're going to become more and more in the spotlight. Absolutely. I think that, that, that is one to watch. And I think for a lot of South Africans, we're wondering whether there will be, uh, whether we'll see a, a return, if I can call it that, to the rule of law in this country. Guys, let me thank you so much for listening to our show. Remember, you can find all of us on social media. You can find Big Daddy Liberty um, on all your social media. Just search Big Daddy Liberty and uh, look out for the show online. And uh, all of our writers, analysts, and the like can be found on the Daily Friend website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. Guys, thank you so, for, so much for listening. We'll see you next week, Tuesday.